Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Key to All Mythologies podcast. Today we are discussing the 13th, 14th, and 15th cantos of Dante's Purgatorio. In these cantos, Dante the Pilgrim and his guide Virgil move through the terraces of the envious. Some questions we consider include, but are not limited to, how can love be the answer to the question envy poses? Is there a golden mean between vice and virtue? Sort of subsidiary question. How Aristotelian was Dante? What is the correct balance of focusing on earth and politics versus focusing on heavenly things? How is the kind of person you are able to affect the kind of things you can and cannot see? And what is the distinction between truth and factual truth? What does Dante mean by the opaque and compelling remark that poetry is an error that is not false? And how is the punishment meted out in these terraces a correction for the violence to community done by the envious while they were living? And now you'll hear Elijah with the opening question. Uh, this is Elijah uh, for our opening question today. I thought we could start by discussing how love is the opposing virtue to envy. In other words, how does love resolve the problem that envy poses? To look at this, we can maybe start with Virgil's speech where he explains to Dante. Okay, so starting in, we'll say 40. My master and I alone again were climbing, and as we went along, hoping to take some profit from his words, I turned to him and asked, what did the spirit from Romagna mean when he spoke of things that can't be shared? He replied, of his worst fault, he knows the cost. Thus, it is no wonder he condemns it in the hope that fewer souls will have a reason to lament, because your appetites are fixed on things that, divided, lessen each one's share. Envy's bellows pushes breath into your sighs. But if love for the highest sphere could turn your longings towards heavenly things, then fear of sharing would pass from your hearts. For there above, when more souls speak of ours, the more of goodness each one owns, the more of love is burning in that cloister. I am more starved for answers, I said, than if before I had kept silent, since now my mind is filled with greater doubt. How can it be that a good distributed can enrich a greater number of possessors than if it were possessed by few? And he to me, because you still have your mind fixed on earthly things, you harvest darkness from the light itself. That infinite and ineffable good, which, do, which dwells on high, speeds towards love as a ray of sunlight to a shining body. It returns the love it finds in equal measure, so that if more of ardor is extended, eternal goodness will augment its own. And the more souls there are who love on high, the more there is to love, the more of loving, for like a mirror, each returns it to the other. And if my words... Do not requite your hunger. You shall see Beatrice. She will deliver you entirely from this and every craving. Uh, this is just an interesting moment. And um, but yeah, what did you guys make of, of Virgil's explanation here? I was wondering if there, as a kind of second question to your opening question, Elijah, if there's a tension with this, just in that love is the kind of the origin of all virtues then the source of all virtues and then is used specifically here as the virtue which counters envy but i mean you described it as charity which i'm not sure if that addresses the 
question or not but i was kind of i was interested in that it's just like as i love being made a specific counterpoint to a vice rather than a, the general yeah the general ground of, of all the of all the mm -hmm. virtues well so if we try to make it a little more granular right what's the problem with pride well pride is loving yourself more than you love god mm -hmm. okay what is the problem with envy envy is loving an object that your neighbor loves and then allowing that to drive you to harm or trick or steal from your neighbor right so there is a distinction and we could say what's the problem with gluttony gluttony is loving food more than god mm -hmm. right so it's all these sort of shades of love or different ways that love goes awry and i do think that's the source i think mm -hmm. you know in a sort of augustinian way and we'll see this in the next reading all all sin is disordered love ultimately right so say yeah. later, virtue is love well-directed and sin is love poorly directed right yeah or vice is love poorly directed but it, but it, so if we were to say well how do you stop envy well stop wanting what your neighbor has but that's not what virgil says he says well want something different and then he makes this sort of qualitative distinction that like if you love the things of god those things can be shared but never diminish and they actually augment by being shared mm-hmm yeah. Right. And I, I don't know, it's like, it's just a lovely idea. And, and I think there's some, you know, this where he says, the more souls there are who love on high, the more there is to love, the more of loving for like a mirror, each returns it to the other. Yeah. Right. And even, yeah, I was thinking about your, uh, just thinking about your interest in the economic terms from the last reading here is he's because Virgil is making a distinction between material goods and spiritual goods, you know, and spiritual goods multiply as they're shared rather than diminish as they're shared and and in dante the pilgrim's kind of confused response he's thinking in economic or material terms he doesn't understand the the distinction between a spiritual good and a material good right and the the envious they um they make a mistake when it talks when thinking about the good what is good what's good for them and so they want the things that their neighbor has, usually earthly things. And they fail to realize that there's spiritual good in, you know, wanting your neighbor to do well or, you know, ce celebrate their success and support them in their hard times. At any rate, the di the distribution of the spiritual good, as you said, it doesn't diminish; it multiplies as it's distributed. That's the um, infinite and ineffable good, and that's the the divine mystery at play there, which the envious sinner, you know, kind of fails to see that remarkable divine miracle. When Virgil is, is proposing here a way out of, you know, zero-sum thinking, right? So, like, the envious person, if there's five apples, if I give one to you, I only have four apples. I'm now at an apple, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to try to, like, test this, I'm trying to think of a way to test this in the sense of, like, I do think there's some mystery in it, Alex, but I also want to, it's, it's something like, okay, like, if we think about children, right? If you love your children, right, it's 
you can be tired at the end of the day from having like you know expressed your love for for your children and feeding them bathing them all that but there's some way in which that love is also not diminished but it actually grows in some way that's what i think he's suggesting here right or like a community of friends right if they all love each other yeah i mean he's suggesting something like right to give love away is to not actually lose it right if you're giving it in a you know not in a self-seeking way right and then that changes the whole economic equation if that's right does that seem to you guys to be right yeah because the source is god right and god's good is infinite so can't diminish the infinite i was wondering it seems like he uses a fairly to me a fairly strange like uh his description seems unnecessarily convoluted, I think, but the imagery that he that Virgil employs. I don't know if that's supposed to suggest that he doesn't he only understands kind of secondhand or with, without direct experience or uh, some kind of rhetorical poetic function, but this whole reading actually seemed um i don't know there was kind of an air of uh opacity to me <laughs> in a lot of ways uh there are mysterious I mean, not mysterious but there are voices that fly you know come out of the air with no source and dante has a an ecstatic vision the, the culminating event is the ecstatic the ecstatic vision and then yeah there's this business with the, the mirroring the mirroring of goodness and light being attracted to light there's especially purgatory of 14 felt like hard follow <laughs> to me kind of hard to understand the argument and it was ex- loaded extra loaded with very specific names and italian names and italian places of the time you know an era a very specific era and um, it's kind of hard to keep hard to find your way into but so there's like that one, the one penitent says to the other penitent, he like tells this story about Italy using the river as this thread. And he talks about how all down the river, there's all these different animals and they're all devouring each other. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I agree that that was opaque. In a way, I was almost reading it like, like the shield of Achilles in Homer, right? It's mm-hmm. like a parabolic presentation of how envy works on humankind right and so he's like giving you this grand tour down italy and he's look and look at the bears and the whelps and the dogs and the wolves all devouring each other and this is this is the state of human society generally i think that's i yeah i agree that i got lost in the weeds a little bit but that was kind of my reading and i found it kind of interesting trying to read it as an allegory or parable and there's just so many animal references right yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't that it was hard to follow exactly. It was just um, extra dense with um, the specific names of Italian, you know, of Italian families and Italian political context. At the end of 14, after all that, they hear some more of these shouted, uh, I don't know what you would call these, it's like direct addresses to the from these sort of like flying, I guess they're angels that are flying across the sky and they're 
they're shouting sort of moral tidbits of moral guidance or something like that to the to the uh, penitents and they've left the behind the envious and this is at 142 this is after the long description of the river in italy and the animals devouring each other and then all the names of the italian political dynasties and, and places in italy and um now that the air was quiet all around us he virgil said to me that was the bit and brittle to keep a man within his bounds but you mortals take the bait so that the hook of your old adversary draws you to him and then of little use is curb or lure the heavens call to you and wheel about you revealing their eternal splendors but your eyes are fixed upon the earth for that he seeing all does smite you i think this this reprimand is meant to apply to the previous monologues about italian politics along with being like a general apostrophe just on human nature i mean i think so on a technical level the other translation i've read calls it the whip and the rain mm -hmm. the bit and the bridle but but the idea is that man is kept in line by something he's fleeing from and something he's fleeing towards so if we think mm -hmm. back to the circle of the prideful right the whip which i think the whip the whip would be the images of humility right and the rain mm. or the bridle would be those images on the floor mm. right and, and every layer is structured like this so in this earlier in the the positive example which is the bit the positive example always starts with mary right so mary's yeah. always saying something yeah and here i mean it's strange because mary the example of example of of love as opposed to envy is her saying we have no more wine right at that party the wedding where jesus will produce the first wine mm -hmm. and that's somehow the opposite of envy but uh yeah as a general framework it's like something you're running towards and something you're running away from and you need both of those and we'll see those with every vice and virtue i mean i don't know if that's what you were sort of thinking about but if that's helpful uh yeah yeah i don't know i just was curious because it seems like it's very you know in the first canto we have the um sepia is reprimands dante for being too focused on italy right she says what you mean to say is which of you who are now here once dwelled in italy or something rather than who was here as italian and then in this canto you have a much more obsessive focus on Italy. And that ends with Virgil saying, you know, don't be too fixed upon the earth, but look to the heavens, you know. And the so along those lines, Adam, if I can pick up. So line 133, right? We hear the voice, whoever finds me shall slay me and fled as thunder fades away after the sudden rending of its cloud. Mm -hmm. That whoever finds me shall slay, slay me, that's the voice of Cain, right? God yeah. punishes Cain for envying his brother and then banishes him. And, and Cain says, my punishment's too much to bear. Whoever finds me will strike me down. And then Genesis 4, Cain goes and he founds the first city and that city almost instantly becomes sort of debauched, right? So like yeah. there's like the son or grandson of Cain who says Cain killed one, but I'll kill seven or whatever, right? He's sort of intense. That's, that's a paraphrase, but he sort of intensifies yeah. the 
violence of Cain. The reason I bring all this up is I'm wondering what is the connection between envy and the polis? Obviously, Sapia's whole thing is like if you're a Florentine and you're you're viewing yourself as being in competition with all the other, you know, the Milanese or whatever, right? The Romans, all of that stuff. If that's what you're doing, you're basically engaging in in envy at like a tribal scale or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not okay, right? Because we're not, we're no longer. I mean, she doesn't quite say this, but in effect, she's saying something like, "Well, we're now citizens of the New Jerusalem, all of us, right?" And those yeah. political rivalries that I guess were based in envy are are no longer operative. All that to say, what is the connection between envy and political life? Right. Um, which we see. Well, and also, in. I think it, Go ahead. I like that you brought up that Cain thing because a lot of these, um, the lamenting that happens here is about families. Uh, so Guido del Duca, is the man who's speaking here, is a lot of a lot of Guido's laments involve families going to hell because, so to speak, because they are the offspring of a good man is is worse, right? Or they mm. become violent, political violence intensifies over time. I mean, I think, I guess the connection would be like, so envy is laid out for us as a sin that logically culminates in hating other people, right? It's not just that you want something that they have, you you actively don't want them to be happy and you actively, I mean, Sepia, Sepia you know, she uh, relishes in the destruction of her own the army from her own city right that's the yeah the culmination of her of her envious of her envious path is to prefer to see others destroyed to her even to herself you know being happy it's really a striking line when she says now i when she says to god now i no longer fear you it's like that really sounds like blasphemy right but here she yeah. is in purgatory and then a glaros Go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say Aglaros, right? That's the story from Ovid. And the, the god wants to sleep with her sister and she tries to stop it because she wants to be the one that God sleeps with. And so as a result, she's turned to stone. And that's a really nice, you know, rhyme or echo with Cain. And it's also the family dynamic. Uh, okay. When it, and it makes sense that envy might be so it's lower down in purgatory. So it's ostensibly worse than like wrath. Because envy, envy always presupposes, I think, always presupposes a personal connection, right? You envy what your neighbor has because you know your neighbor. If you didn't know your neighbor, you couldn't envy him, right? So you can be wrathful to a stranger, but probably more often than not, especially as Dante is presenting it, envy is close to betrayal of kin or friend, Right, the relationships that it's most liable to corrode sort of begin at home and begin with people that are close to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good thing. Obviously, Cain kills his brother out of envy. Um, what did you think about? So, at the end of her, at the end of Sepia's story, at like at beginning around, so she's saying she enjoyed watching this army be destroyed, the army from her home city. It's like one uh, Purgatorio 13, 117. When they were routed and turned back in bitter steps of flight, I watched the chase. My heart filled with such boundless joy that recklessly that recklessly, I turned my face to God, crying, now I do not fear you anymore, as the blackbird said after a glint of sunshine. What do you make of that 
of that image as the blackbird said after a glint of sunshine i mean it almost sounds like a, there's nothing in the notes about it i just checked but it almost sounds like a reference to like an aesop's fable or something right mm-hmm. like there's yeah. there's this bird so it'd be ridiculous to think that you've somehow conquered or overcome the sun right but you can imagine this this I can imagine a story where a bird deludes himself into thinking itself into thinking I've conquered the sun and then sort of strutting proudly and essentially right so like it's a blackbird right so if the sun is pure light blackbird is pure blackness thinking that somehow darkness has overcome light or my my personal coloration right as as darkness is somehow an affront and an overcoming of the sun such that i no longer need to fear it or something yeah i don't think that i mean i guess she's supposed to be a blackbird right and the glint of sunshine is watching the the route of her of the army i was thinking the glint is god and i'm just looking up glint right it's gleam to look quickly or briefly glance to appear briefly or faintly yeah so she kind of looks to god and looks at god in the face as it were and says i'm no longer afraid of you though she hasn't really seen or understood god Uh, i see okay so you you think that like the blackbird is saying Upon seeing one glint of sunshine, now I know everything there is to know about the sun and I don't have to fear anymore. I mean, yeah, and there's something here, like if we think about Augustine's city of God, right? Yeah. The the city was very much tied to the gods. So when she says, now I do not fear you, we could read fear as like reverence there, right? Like whatever gods were supposedly protecting the city have proved totally ineffectual. Therefore, I'm not going to fear you at all because the very thing that was tied to your existence, right? The city, whatever God it was, whatever God's existence was supposedly tied to the city. When the city is destroyed, it's effectively as if the God were destroyed, you know, like when Rome is burnt or sacked by the pagans, it's like, yeah, that's, that's a serious um, challenge to Job himself. Yeah. Or Mars or whatever. Right. You kind of, or Athena or whoever might be, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I see what you. I see what you. Mean. I just. Um... But but well, and if the, that reading is right, what's interesting about it is it's, it's sort of, an inability to imagine God outside of a political context. Right, and that is maybe important to like this whole city thing, and that we're thinking about that like, yeah, political life is all there is. Um, the gods are relevant insofar as they play a role in the polis and not otherwise, and obviously christianity would disagree with that yeah yeah no i mean i think that it makes some sense to me so i guess there's something i still seems like there's something a little bit mysterious about it like it doesn't quite line there's up like the, what proceeds but there's also a uh, there's a practice in gardening of using uh pie pans to deter birds because the sunlight flashes off of them and confuses the birds and they they are afraid of these glints of light but i suppose once you've had the pie pans up long enough the birds might get used to it and 
uh, get after your produce anyway. That would be a very interesting simile for Dante. He use, doesn't use very many uh, like agrarian style civilies like that. That's what that is. I like that though. That that so makes a lot of sense. That, that, um, that makes it make perfect sense. Because Dante is seeing little things along the way. Or um, are, are we like equating the glints of light to the visitations of the angels? Or these sort of like more heavenly figures that Dante encounters? Well, when I first read it, I thought the idea was the blackbird said to God after getting a glint of sunshine, now I don't fear you anymore. That's why it seemed really bizarre to me. But I mean, you're both of your explanations make it make more sense. And mm-hmm. how long I'm going to stay with this, this line of inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's interesting. Uh, little, little and then she turns out to be one of those who, who sought, she says, I sought my peace with God at the very last. So she's another one yeah. of these late repenters. Impenitence would not have yet reduced the debt had it not been for Peter the comb seller, who in his charity was grieved for me and remembered me in his devout petitions. What's interesting about this? Well, Peter is also the, you know, the foundation of the Catholic Church, right? The Apostle Peter. And we've run across a lot of Peters, right? There was Pietro Delvinia, the suicide in the woods, who who I thought was supposed to be some sort of mirror of, of Peter the Apostle. And then we have Peter, who's a comb seller, which I take to be like a very humble profession, right? Mm-hmm. So we have this very powerful lady involved in these political intrigues at the highest level and her nephew or whoever was leading when she thought she should be leading. And so she took pride in the destruction of the city or took enjoyed it. And then she's saved by this sort of humble sort of brother Lawrence type figure who's just walking around selling his combs, praying for this lady. And it's the opposite of envy, right? He is he who in his charity, yeah, was praying for me, even though I had so much more than he did, even though I sort of deserved my fate in a way, right? But he was sort of doing this thing of of the love that doesn't diminish, but actually augments by by its employment or use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like sort of a bitten, like a mini bitten bridle right there right? in your story and in, in, in your salvation. I'd like to think in some way that to try and track the, there's so much interplay of seeing and not seeing in this these readings. I mean, in the the uh, punishment of the, I guess I didn't say this yet, the punishment of the envious is that they have their eyes sewn shut by iron wires and so they can't see anything. So obviously the examples of the examples of charity will come to them come to them as shouted addresses. Angelic messengers fly across them and shout. So I don't know. There's a lot of blindness. There's a lot of bright blinding lights. Dante's like eyes having to adjust as he gets closer to the the bright light at the top of purgatory. You know, I mean, we, got, we read Virgil's metaphor already, or Virgil's explanation of that line, which involves images of mirror and light and reflection. I don't know what we can do with that. I know we've been interested in talking about the versions of seeing and not seeing in this poem and what should be looked at and what can't be looked at and 
how that relates to uh, the larger the larger project of the whole of the whole comedy. Along these lines, can we look at Purgatorio 15, like starting in 22, maybe? So this is when he sees the unfamiliar brightness of the angel, right? And he says, so starting in 22, he says, it seems, it seemed to me that I was struck by such bright light reflected there before me that my eyes were quick to turn away. What is that, gentle father, I asked, that which I cannot even screen my eyes, it seems to be moving towards us. Don't be surprised, he answered me, if those who live in heaven still can blind you. This messenger invites us to ascend. Soon, the sight of beings such as these will not be burdensome, will give you as much delight as nature made you fit to feel. Right, so it's this interesting thing of, in some ways, Dante's thinking about relative subject subjectivities, right? If you're somebody who's been purged of sin, the angel will appear not only some will appear not only legible, let's say, but it'll also be delightful, mm -hmm. right? But where he's at in his current state, it's just blinding, mm -hmm. right? And so the whole project, right, the whole project of the poem, in a sense, is to learn to see better, yeah. right? And seeing better right. involves be becoming a certain sort of person, a virtuous person. Well, first a person who, who is saved in, in terms of the event of salvation, but then also a virtuous person who can bear to take in the light. Yeah. And what's interesting about this, then, when we think about with the envious, is that their punishment is such that, or not punishment, their discipline, I'll say, is such that for a time they need to have their eyesight taken away so that when their eyes are unsewn or whatever, when they go to the next level, they can actually see better. And essentially, the, essentially what, what the problem is, is that through habituation, let's say, I'm making Dante maybe more of an Aristotelian than he is, but through habituation, their eyes find earthly things lovely and spiritual things uninteresting. No, I think habituation is a good way to talk about it. I mean, I think the, the function of purgatory is to, to introduce the habits of virtue, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the more vicious you are, the longer it takes, the longer it takes to dishabituate and rehabituate you on the different terraces. Which does pose again for me the problem of skipping ahead rapidly if you're being prayed for by people on, on earth. But actually, I was, I've been reading a separately reading a book about the reformation the german reformation and i'm sure you guys know that one of luther's primary complaints was uh, with the selling of indulgences which is supposed to help your you know dead relatives move through purgatory faster and he actually luther just objected completely to the idea of purgatory like the reformation itself and you know the protestant churches that followed all obviously rejected purgatory as a theological idea and luther had nothing uh, nothing good to say about about dante and dante's conception of purgatory and places a lot of the blame for the for the um the decadence of the catholic church on on dante hmm. i didn't know that he had all that much animus but so i think that you know purgatory was dante had a lot of creative freedom <laughs> when he was designing purgatory a lot more so than heaven or hell. We were, we were mentioning that a couple of weeks ago. It's interesting to read this and go, oh man, 
could see how this could really get, you know, with the, the way indulgences happen to develop, you know, over the next couple hundred years, it's like, it's really yeah. easy to see how this could, this idea could be corrupted. But then it's like, well, do I, do I blame Dante for that? Because, and I mean, because the, the argument in his defense is something like, oh, isn't it beautiful that there's this community, like those in purgatory and those on earth are connected by prayers and like being right. surrounded by these people that care for you. Well, even if we just think about this, like, you know, Aristotle would say, like, what do you need? What do you need to have virtue? Well, you need a tutor to virtue to train you in virtue. Yeah. Right. And so the idea that like these people who are trying to acquire virtue are surrounded by this community that includes people on earth that are sort of helping them along in their journey. That's really beautiful. And I think it's, I think it's true that you need a community in order to inculcate true virtue, right? It's very hard to do as a, as an individual. Right. And so we can give all these reasons, but we also know the sort of historical fact that it became this huge problem and does seem like Dante was probably a, a big factor in pushing that idea to the forefront. I don't think yeah. he invented it per se, but I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I could figure that out, but I don't know. This is no, sort of no. interesting I, question. I don't think he invented it, but I mean, I do think when people think of purgatory, they think of uh, Dante and purgatory, right? I mean, some degree that's true of hell as well. Our images of hell and purgatory are very, yeah, derived, derivative, derivative of Dante's imagination. Probably less so with heaven. Well, in the very idea, I mean, I think the very idea that sort of the punishment fits the crime in a particular way, I don't really see that in the Bible. And I actually mm -hmm. think it probably comes largely from Ovid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still mulling over that thought about we have these three realms, right? We're in purgatory. We've been through hell and we're journeying toward heaven. And purgatory, like you mentioned before, seems to be the only realm where there's an important connection between the souls of sinners who have died and living people on earth who can pray for the souls of these sinners who are traveling through purgatory. Because... Uh, this is the only realm where it seems to matter because in hell, that's a final judgment and there's no hope, right? We've talked about hope before. Purgatory seems to be a realm of hope for, you know, a successful pilgrimage to paradise. In paradise, I mean, you've already arrived, so you are successfully saved, so whether someone living on earth is praying for you or not doesn't matter because you are saved, in fact. And then, you know, again, hell, you are condemned, in fact, and no amount of prayers will save you. But in purgatory, there's this process of redemption that can be aided by the prayers of the living. I, I so, think that's yeah. I think that's right, Alex. I would only add, I'm sure that people in heaven are praying for those on earth, right? That's like when you ask the, you know, when Catholics ask the ah, saints, yeah. saints to intercede, that's essentially what it is, as I understand it. 
there's a one-way, let's say, conduit from earth to purgatory, and then another one-way conduit from heaven to earth, and then mm. and then hell is hermetically sealed. Is that satisfactory? Yeah, I I that's right. I had not thought about the uh, heavenly intercession for the living. There wouldn't be a connection between the uh, heavenly souls and the souls in purgatory. It's just they're just connected through this process by which uh, a sinner's soul in purgatory will be purged and then moved to paradise. Yeah, that's right. And then they could intercede for the living. Yeah, and maybe maybe somebody, so if we imagine Peter the comb seller intercedes for Sapia, she gets to heaven and then turns around and intercedes for him. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of thing, at least in theory, is possible. Yeah, and that's, I think, as we were sort of talking, right? Like, this wouldn't be just like a purely economic you prayed for me so i will pray for you sort of thing but you know we're talking about um distributing like divine love mm-hmm. and that's a multiplying multiplying divine a, love yeah, right a good a good that does not diminish when distributed yeah and it increases to sort of shift the topic slightly, I mean, it's really interesting because of Christian doctrine, right? It's interesting that there are these two pieces and they somehow interact. So one is like, okay, if you didn't, if you weren't baptized or if you didn't cry out to God for help, if you didn't have like this conversion moment, you're, you're out of, you're in hell. There's no chance for you. And, and so on one hand, you could be tempted to say, well, it's really just all about this moment of repentance, right? Being saved in sort of modern American Christian vernacular. On the other hand, it's really important that you be a virtuous person, right? Mm-hmm. And so like we have all these people that get into purgatory because the last second they turn to God. At their moment of death, they were just as vicious as plenty of people in hell. Right. And, and so it's interesting, it's not either or, it's both and, right? And that's, a, I mean, that's this whole weird logic of grace, right? So once you are saved, if you're saved at the last second, if you convert, if you ask for God's mercy, you can have it, but then you still must become a person who's, and it's not even that, it's not even like, I think this is pretty important, it's not even that the beatific vision is a reward for seeking virtue or something right it's like literally like and and i'm thinking of the moment when dante's like why does that angel blind my eyes so much and he goes well because you don't you're not capable of seeing that without it hurting your eyes and so there's a real you know how we talk about natural consequences it's a real natural consequence that if you're not a virtuous person you like literally can't see God, right? Like literally like your eyes are not capable of, of perceiving God, even if you were in his presence, right? It would mm-hmm. just be this blinding, unintelligible light, right? Mm-hmm. But, and it's, and what's strange about it is like, I mean, you might say it's something like this, that as you become more godlike, 
right? So to become virtuous is to become more godly, which is to be more godlike. As you become more godlike, you become more capable of perceiving God. Yeah, and that's, it's a sort of natural, right? And what is a consequence? A consequence is something that follows something else, right? It's a, so it's a natural consequence, but not in the negative sense of the word, that by becoming virtuous, you can see God. And, by, and it probably can, the converse is probably true too, right? The more vicious you become, the less you can see the light of God other than as this blinding, terrifying thing. I don't know. I mean, that's a lot. What do you make of any or all of that? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely hip to the sort of the habituation line, especially like the analogy between this light, you know, seeing the divine light of God or becoming habituated to it and uh, the process that was discussed in Plato's Republic about the cave and emerging from the cave. You can't bask in the pure light of reason at first. When you emerge from the cave, you're just going to be blinded and overwhelmed by that light of reason. And so you have to train yourself by looking at the moon reflected in a pool of water and slowly habituate yourself to more and more light as you go. That's good. So we're talking about, yeah, Dante has been greeted. He's encountered angels along the way. He's becoming more habituated to that. Is that what we're seeing now? Yeah, but the, but it's, it's not just habituated to the light. It's that like by becoming a virtuous person, you become capable of seeing the light, right? Like there's some sort of connection. It's like, as you go up the mountain, you're purged of sin and you, it seems you put on the the opposing virtue and that allows you to see the light. Right. So it's really, I think it's really specifically tied to that okay you can't you can't become habituated to the light of the angels and stay a vicious person is what i'm saying right you're you either when you become virtuous you see the light when you're still on the way you're blinded by the light and so you can't you can't really perceive it you have to look away is that kind of how the flip side the flip side the vicious are blinded by the light. Yeah, except in this in this reading, it's the the ones who are becoming virtuous who are not blinded because their eyes are sewn shut, and it's Dante who is blinded. Right. right. Well, that's what's particularly strange about the envious, and I think they're the only penitents whose eyes have to be shut. It's that um, the tenet from the gospels right if your eye sins against you put it out interesting that they're they're uh in their the sight has so much power that it has to be physically blocked the only way they can become good is to not see anything to 
spark in me in them, right? <laughs> I always hesitate to go to free will arguments, but it is an interesting thing to try and think about in terms of the, of the freedom of the will. If it's like they're the vice of envy is so powerful within them that <laughs> the only way to thwart it, it would be to actually put out your own eyes or to, you know, sew your eyes shut or something, which I guess would be a remarkable and free action, but it you know, speaks interestingly to this question, the question of, I think, of uh, freedom and habituation and yeah, viciousness and virtue. I'm thinking of Hazel Motes at the end of Wise Blood, who puts out his own eyes to show that he can he he can see by faith alone. That's right. But is but is it fundamentally different? So the proud, right? The proud are laden with these boulders, mm -hmm. right? And they're not given the choice to. But I think they are in terms of the freedom of the will, and it, they are given the choice to continue moving up the mountain or not, right? To continue struggling with the boulder on their back. And I would say probably that, I mean, theoretically, the envious, you know, an envious person with their eyes uh, sewed shut could just stop running and say, I'm not going anymore. And maybe people do that, which we haven't seen one. That would be interesting, right? Yeah, just the one um, the one lazy fellow. I forget his name. Yeah, in the, an the antechamber. In the antechamber, that's right. <laughs> it's going to take so long for me to wait until my appointed time, I might as well not even start moving. Well, that's, I mean, if we think of, do you remember uh, the whole point of the violent bear it away? Now that I have O'Connor on the mind, right? Uh, it's not Jesus or the devil, it's Jesus or you. And if you choose you, you choose the devil. That's kind of what the book is sort of illustrating in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, the free will of the act is, the, the, the act of the free will is, do you choose God or the devil? Mm -hmm. right if you choose the devil you go to hell and your will is pretty much restrained and you you choose god you go to purgatory and your will is pretty much restrained by this bit and bridle right so there's like this sort of binary choice you make but then after that i don't really see a ton of space for freedom of the will mm -hmm. and certainly not like modern expressive individualism in the sense of i'm going to do purgatory my way Right. It's the exact opposite of that, of like they're all singing in unison. You're subjected to this treatment. There's no not even really self-diagnosis. Right. You're subjected to this treatment as long as God's judgment has dictated. Which could be a long time or a short time, uh, which we should yeah. com comment to just as I'm thinking about it. There's a moment where Dante says, oh, I'm not so worried when I go to purgatory. I'm not so worried about envy, but I think I'm going to spend a long time in the, the circle of pride. Mm -hmm. which is an interesting moment yeah yeah it's a it's a favorite of the uh the commentators <laughs> yeah everybody wants to talk about that line um although to me it doesn't seem that astounding you know i'm sure he was a towered intellectually above the people around him i mean he obviously thought of himself as a great poet he includes himself among the six greatest poets in history at the beginning you know i think he was aware that pride was a constant danger and you know there's something kind of, almost kind of ironic or humorous about it in a way because you're saying you know i don't <laughs> i don't struggle with envy because you know i don't i'm superior to everyone <laughs> so pride is my problem i don't know nothing to envy with you you people no so i'm not i guess i'm not really sure what to say about it beyond uh it's kind of a nice uh oh well as with many things in this poem you could see it as a 
charming and self-effacing gesture or a gesture that still seems haughty and prideful. Adam, do you want to lead us through the visions? Yeah, well, specifically, I, I don't know that we need to read the, all of them, mm -hmm. uh, but he, um, near the end of Canto 15, they leave the Terrace of Envy. But this is before they've come into the Terrace of Wrath. So they're sort of in a, right? They're sort of in an in-between. So they don't really start to enter the Terrace of Wrath until the very end of this canto. And he's talking to Virgil about, Virgil's just finished explaining to him how a good can not be diminished as it's shared. And he says, this is at 80, 85. Before, before you read, Adam, just to clarify, I think these are supposed to be the bridal that is the opposite of wrath. So the pattern is you see the good exemplar and the bad exemplar. Uh, so these are like, right, right, Stephen's getting stoned and he doesn't return it with hatred. So You're it's right. like meekness or gentleness in response to wrath. And then I okay. think when we get there, we'll see the punishment of the wrathful. But for some reason, we're getting the the bridal earlier does that make sense yeah yeah okay yeah you know you're so that can be interesting to think about if the uh the form of experience relates to the sin in some way so we had the beautiful living carvings with pride and then the shouted i don't know the shouted reminders or something shouted addresses with with uh envy and then you have the ecstatic visions with wrath. Anyway, so he says, this is starting at 85. There it seemed to me I was caught up in an ecstatic sudden vision in which I saw a temple full of people and at the door about to enter a woman with the sweet demeanor of a mother who said, my son, why have you dealt with us like this? Behold, your father and I have searched for you in sorrow. Just as she now was silent, so did that which brought her leave my sight. Then there appeared, so this is Mary searching for Jesus when he's in the temple. Then there appeared to me another woman, tears of grief still running down her cheeks from anger at the one whom she disdained. She said, if you are indeed Lord of this city, whose naming caused such strife among the gods and from which so much knowledge lights the world, avenge yourself on those bold arms that dared embrace our daughter, that dared embrace our daughter, Pisistratus. And it seemed to me that Lord gave gracious answer offer gently and with tranquil look what shall we do to one who seeks our harm if we condemn the one who loves us then i saw people aflame with burning wrath stoning a young stoning a youth to death and each one screaming to himself kill kill and i saw him sinking to the ground for death was heavy on him now but keeping his eyes open to heaven as from his deepest agony he begged the lord on high to pardon his tormentors with a look that must unlock compassion. So as a series of visions, Mary, they always begin with Mary, I think. Mary, and then there's this classical example, one of the ancient Greek kings who names Athens, and I, I guess he is, deals graciously with a, with a man who behaved roughly toward his daughter, and then there's Stephen, the martyr, who, yeah, who begs for his, uh, his murderers to be spared as as they're murdering him what i was really interested in was the final three lines when my soul made its way back to the things that are real outside it i came to know my errors were not false 
I wonder if you could think of that as a description of the entire, like the comedy itself, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least his time in hell. Because we discussed several times these direct addresses to the reader previously where he says, you know, I, I know this sounds unbelievable, reader, but, you know, you have to believe me. I truly saw it. I truly experienced it. And how we were meant to take that, given that no one could truly see or experience the things that are related in the poem. But here he seems to be saying, you know, there is a way to truly experience something which is not real outside of the vision, where the vision itself can have as a reality, right? Yeah, so those the, that that those uh, those lines seem to me to be kind of a a key to thinking about what the what the allegorical status of the poem is. So right, so errors here could almost be read as hallucinations, right? I came to know that my hallucinations were not false, mm -hmm. and typically, and what is the poet do right what is the, the poet through imagination creates a world right and conveys it via speech so we could mm -hmm. say well poetry then is just hallucinations and those aren't the real world so therefore they're not real right in this line i came to know my errors were not false which is a really striking line yeah is saying something like i'm just repeating back what you said or what i understood you to be saying so it's something like when it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question of like, just even pulling it up to, to a much higher level of like, why study literature? These people don't exist. They're figments of imagination, right? The Karamazov brothers, Madame Bovary, Don Quixote, they, they don't, they did not exist. There's no factuality about them. Right. And, and what Dante's saying here is, well, they can be, they can be unfactual and also true, right? My soul made its way back to the real things that are outside it, this desk, this water bottle, those are the real things outside it. But Dante's poem is not factual, but it can, but it can be true. And it's not, and it's not that all poetry is true, but, but good poetry is true. Yeah. And it's, it's more true. I mean, it's the distinction between true and factual, right? And yeah, Dante's poem is true, even if it's not factual. Yeah, that's what I took to mean. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about the poem generally. Yeah. I'm not sure it totally gets us out of the problem of I stake my reputation that this really happened sort of thing that he does. Yeah. I do think a theme you see in commentaries often is poem mirrors the experience of the reader is meant to mirror the experience of the pilgrim and that you begin in ignorance and then the poem educates you as you move forward so i think it would be useful to look for moments as we read through purgatory and then especially paradisio that seem to shed light on interpretive questions we've had in the previous reading yeah that's going to be the structure as we move forward very, uh, very similar to a modernist novels we've, we've encountered in the past. Yeah, that's right. Poet of the secular age, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that he says my errors were not false. So, because these visions are ostensibly sent to him from God or from 
you know, the structure of purgatory or whatever, but he attributes it to his own consciousness in some way. And that, I mean, you know, nobody in the like New Testament is talking about, I don't think, or, or prophets in the Old Testament, they're not talking about visions in that way of like, well, I had this vision, but it was just my brain, but it was true. Or it's just my mind, but it was true. Yeah, I don't think they make a distinction between the inside and the outside of the soul in that way, right? Uh-huh. I mean, in terms of ecstatic visions, probably not even of dreams either. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I didn't know what to what degree the what follows with Virgil, right? Virgil reprimands him for moving too slowly has to do with I wasn't clear how that related to like the content of the visions or the meaning of the visions. Um, except I think you could say the message might be something like don't get hung up on the or don't uh the balance between active forward motion and ecstatic visions has to be maintained, right? You can't just have the visions. You also have to have the, the trudging, the trudging hard work of climbing the steps of purgatory. Mm-hmm. Like that. Let's read the next couple stanzas starting at 118. My leader, who could see that I was acting like one who shakes himself from sleep, said, what's wrong with you that you can't walk straight, but have come now more than half a league with your eyes veiled and your legs entangled like a man overcome by wine or sleep? So we'll see in a second. There's a question about how sincere this question is. Mm -hmm. Oh, my dear father, I said, if you'll but listen, I will tell you exactly what I saw when my legs were taken from me. And he if over your face you wore a hundred masks, even your faintest thoughts would not be hidden from my sight. So it's strange. Virgil seems to be claim, claiming here, well, I saw what was going on exactly in your mind. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do it with any sort of specificity. So there's there's the possibility that Virgil could just see that he was astonished and overcome. Mm-hmm. And as human reason, he doesn't actually have access to these visions, right? As something like the representative of human reason. But then he says, these things were shown to you so you would not refuse to open your heart to the waters of peace that pour from the eternal fountain, right? So he seems to have known the purpose of the visions, but it's interesting that he's maybe somehow, go ahead. I was maybe not the content, that's right. No. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's interesting that he's somehow surprised that the visions would slow him as they did, right? It's like, there's, I mean, in, there's a lot of places like this where it's like Virgil, almost and it's increasingly so the more we get into purgatory he understands a lot but he doesn't understand everything right he understands things not quite rightly right yeah i mean of of the things dante's supposed to look at it seems like a vision is the right sort of thing to arrest arrest his attention yeah yeah no he says after this he says um after what you just read elijah Virgil continues, I did not ask what's wrong for your resemblance to a man who stares with but unseeing eyes when his body lies insensate, but I asked to put fresh vigor in your step. So must the sluggard, slow to use his waking hours, even once these come, be spurred to act. So he's saying, from his perspective, it doesn't matter what the contents of the visions are, right? It's 
like don't get drunk on the visions <laughs> you have to continue to be i don't know if it fits into the bit and bridle thing either but uh you know he's, he's saying i have to continue to spur you to action the action is still what's important here right and what i mean we don't exactly know the nature of these visions but what's interesting is that it's you know i'm so imagine i'm hiking up a mountain and i have a mystical vision that's engulfing like you know totally engrossing it's very hard to imagine how i would continue up hiking up the mountain and be engaged in this vision at the same time right they yeah. seem like mutually exclusive activities right <laughs> right right and maybe virgil doesn't quite understand that i don't know so i guess every person who moves through purgatory would have the same visions yeah, I think As they'd they all see Mary and whoever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think they're idiosyncratic or like tailored. Right. It's funny, a couple times, sometimes when I'm sitting there and I start thinking about something, I like really get lost and I'm sort of looking off into space and I'm just in my own little world. And, you know, my, my future daughters, a couple times they're like, hey, you were staring off again. And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking about something. <laughs> my future daughters but they see it right they're like mm -hmm. you're not with us yeah that's all right i'm back i'm back yeah. i think it's kind of an interesting point because i mean another big theme here is that these were once the envy is like all sins is a destroyer of community and these were once people who actively sought to see communities destroyed or at least enjoyed seeing them destroyed and here they've formed communities and the uh Maybe there's some risk with the ecstatic visions of being pulled into like private reverie or something instead of being part of the community. Maybe that's another source of the, the worry and the reprimand. Anything else we need to think about in these? I mean, there's more, but I feel like we've hit big things. Yeah, that was good. Didn't talk about 14 really at all, but I, like I said, I, much, I struggled to find a way into that one. That was a, It was a very opaque canto to me. Well, thank you for joining us on the Quixotic Quest for the Key. Next week, we'll be reading Purgatorio 15 to 18. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night.